Hello and welcome to the 40 Athletes Podcast. I'm your co-host Jason Holzer along with my good friend Jim Huber. This podcast is based on our passion to use sports to transform lives in mind, body, spirit, and environment. We believe sports can have a significantly positive impact in all areas of athletes' lives, not just when they're playing. Our guest today is Joel Goldberg, a native suburban of Philadelphia and Chicago. Joel has been a member of the Kansas City Royals television broadcast since 2008, serving as the host of every pregame and postgame show on Fox Sports Kansas City. The University of Wisconsin graduate won a 2001 Mid-America Emmy for sports reporting and has covered multiple championship teams in both Major League Baseball and the National Football League. Joel has built a 25-year career developing and maintaining sports relationships with professional athletes, coaches, and team management. Now he shares his stories and strategies with companies and associations live on stage and these days virtually. He hosted a weekly podcast called Running the Base, Rounding the Bases, and the last few years has added a daily live video podcast when the pandemic started, focusing on leadership during these times. On top of that, just yesterday, Joel had the opportunity to moderate Simon Sinek and Mark Goldson about entrepreneurship on a virtual retreat through the Hellsberg Entrepreneurial Mentorship Program. Joel, how's it going? And welcome to the program. Jason, Jim, good to be with you guys. It's going well. It's always busy, which is is great. I would rather be busy than not. And so, you know, baseball ends and I think everybody says, all right, you got some time off now, which I really should do, but just kind of pivot to other things. And I don't know. I don't know about you guys. I'd rather I'd rather be busy and nonstop than just sitting around doing nothing. I'm with you on that, you know, and especially, you know, what's uh, excites me to talk to you is you've been a part of winning cultures, you know, and you hear so many people talk about how do you build culture? How do you, how do you build a winning culture? And with the Royals going the world series with the Cardinals, you've seen that. What would you tell individuals that's like trying to develop a winning culture, whether it's in a business or whether it's run a sports organization, what are some of the keys that you've seen that some of the best do? Well, I, you know, I think culture in many ways is, it's certainly who you are. And, and by that, I mean, not one person, but a, a group an organization, which by the way, oftentimes involves not just the organization itself, but, but others that are involved with that organization. So from a sports standpoint, I would say that a winning culture being built doesn't just involve the players or doesn't just involve the front office. It involves the fans. It involves everyone that is involved in that ecosystem. And it takes effort every single day. There's no, to me, such thing as checking a box and saying, okay, now we have that figured out. And, you know, it's it's very much like a a healthy diet or a workout routine. It's either a part of who you are and what you do every single day, or you work on it every now and then, and the results aren't as good. And so teams, to me, like the Cardinals, uh, one of the reasons why they win or are competitive every single year it's not just the talent, it's the culture that they built there. One of the reasons why the Royals will be back to being very good soon is because they they maintain the culture that they built. When I got here in 2008, they had no culture and they've built that. So now their struggles had to do with losing talent. And that's certainly something they need to work on so that they don't lose all that talent at once. But all the young talent that's coming up already understands this culture because they pay attention to it every single day. So when you when you say that, like, what are some of the things that you've seen them implement in those organizations that that develops a championship culture? I think it's a it's a lot of elements, Jim. And, and some of it, by the way, is is very subtle. Some of it is not something that will stand out. Um, certainly, it, it has to be something that 
I think you identify with in terms of who you are as a leader. So, for instance, the Royals really pride themselves on, and I don't know this sounds kind of simplistic, but but just good people, and you know the people that you um, that you would want to spend time with, and obviously you have to be more than just good people to be successful in sports or in business or in life, but they just won't bring in people who don't fit. They won't bring in and sacrifice, um, you know, some of that personality and that character, that high character just to win. And so I think that's part of it. I think it's understanding uh, your history, your legacy, um, you know, in this organization, uh, in terms of the Royals, um, they were really good in the seventies, uh, and, and through a good chunk of the eighties. And so they, they always want to be able to honor that past. I know that as they were building this culture, you suddenly started seeing more, more signage and more banners going up. Even at spring training, you walk into spring training and, and there's all the history laid out and the names and the faces for those players when they walk in there to see who came before them. Uh, but then making sure you create some of your own future too. So, I mean, that's sort of big picture stuff, uh, good people, you know, hardworking, blue collar, all that. And, and that doesn't, that may not work in other spots that may not work in New York or LA or it, it just kind of depends, I think, but, um, there are a lot of, there are a lot more layers to that too, right? I mean, building trust and relationships and, um, you know, going about things the right way and, um, you know, communication and, and, and all those type of things. But I, I think it starts with having the right type of people, right type of people that fit who you are and then going from there. And by the way, I mean, I mentioned it being a culture. I don't think you could bring in a, you know, flashy, um, you know, high profile type of athlete or number of them to a Kansas city. One, you may not be able to afford them. Too. I don't know that it fits the personality of this town. And if I was mentioning that the fan base is part of that culture, that, that all has to kind of mesh together. Well, the thing you mentioned too is about trust. I think trust is so key from the leadership down. Like, do they trust you? And so what have you seen? Like some of the GMs or executives or some of the coaches, what have they done to build the trust that individuals want to buy into the culture, believe in it and stay true to that mission on a daily basis? So, you know, there are a lot of, strategies and building trust and that by the way is one that is similar to culture and i think it's one of the most important elements of building a championship culture because you don't check the trust box like for instance i i know i could pick up the phone and and reach out to a lot of current or former royals uh, because i've built that trust with them they probably don't want to hear a phone call from, you know, members of a media or broadcast crew on a regular basis. So I myself am very guarded with how often I will reach out to them. As a matter of fact, it is very rare that I reach out to a player with a request. It is very rare that I would reach out to a player and say, hey, can you help me with this? Can you do this for me? Can I introduce you to that person? Can I do this? I leave them alone. But what I'm more likely to do is reach out after, say, uh, their wife gives birth to a baby, or they get married, or their father passes away, or they get married, 
and just reach out and say, hey, just want to say congratulations or just uh, whatever it might be, those type of things. Because every day I'm building trust. Part of that trust for me is them understanding that I'm not take, take, take. I don't need something every single time. I could also provide value back to them in, in providing a, you know, a fair and a safe space to do an interview and, um, you know, all those type of things. And so it is a daily constant battle. And I'll give you the end result to that. Uh, when Alex Gordon announced his retirement, the final Thursday of this season, that was the time to call on the favor. And not that those guys are going to be hesitant to talk about Alex Gordon. He was beloved in the clubhouse. He was their silent leader. They all wanted to talk about him, but they also could have talked to him about 50 other reporters or whatever it was. Uh, but I had built those relationships. So I reached out to 14 people. I mean, everything from a Hall of Famer like George Brett uh, to retired manager Ned Yost and you know former players, guys getting ready for games with other teams. And over the course of two days, 14 requests and 14 yeses. And I'll give most of that credit to Alex Gordon, which by the way is a trust issue too. They trusted him. They, they, they looked up to him, but it was also, there was a reason why guys were calling me back an hour before getting on the field for games because they trusted me. And so when you build trust and Joe Madden said it to me best, the now manager of the Los Angeles angels, but when he was with Chicago, he said, everybody wants to get to the trust. And they forget to build the relationship first. He said, you build trust. Once you build, or you build the relationships, pardon me. Once you build the relationships, then you gain trust. Once you gain the trust, then you can have an exchange of ideas. And once you have that exchange of ideas, constructive criticism can flow. So if I turn to you right now and Jim say, you know what you can do better with this podcast? You're going to be like, I mean, I don't, I don't. I don't know you that we well. Actually, we'd like, actually listen to you. Yeah. Maybe that maybe the podcast thing will be wrong because I, you know, I have lived in the broadcast world a lot. But you know, if I come into either one of your offices, hey Jason, here's how you could be a better coach. You know, here's how uh, come on, like you need to build that trust in that. So the best ones, and I was talking to Ned Yost about this uh this morning, and I not that I'm on a regular talking with him, but I'm working on a uh, wrapping up a book right now and I needed to talk to him. And he said that one of the things he did when he came to Kansas city and he became their manager during the 2010 season was to really have his coaches build that trust. So that when he said, I, I didn't have to chew, you know, chew guys out a whole lot. I mean, when I did, it might not be very good, but I have my coaches that were working with these guys every day that could chew them out. And you look over an inning later and they've got their arm around each other and they're, they're having, you know, laughing conversation. Because those coaches, the infield coach built that rapport and that trust with the infield and the outfield coach and on and on and on. That's what you have to work on every single day. When you have that trust, anything to me is possible because, because now you're all working, um, you know, pulling in the same direction, as they say, and you're not doubting others. Wait a minute. Does he have my back? Does he not? Why is he saying this? You want to give me constructive criticism and we've built that trust already. I'm going to listen and then I'm going to use it. When you talk about Alex Gordon, one thing I want to go back to what you mentioned, and he's one of the greats, uh, Royals greats. What, when you talk about him being a leader, like he was a leader of the Royals, what were some of his characteristics that made him such a great leader that individuals wanted to trust him? Well, you know, and you guys know this, there are different types of leaders. So Alex falls in the category, fell in the category of your classic lead by example type. And so 
Alex was not going to be the loudest guy in the room, but he was always going to be the hardest worker in the room. You can be the hardest worker in the room and you'll always have respect. When you're the hardest worker in the room who happens to be the best left fielder in baseball, who is showing everyone the way to go about things, suddenly that lead by example, that silent leader type had guys going into the weight room and doing all of these things in terms of preparation saying, well, wait a minute, I, I need to do a little bit more. I need to be able, be able to do a little bit more because look at what he's doing. I'm going to get to the ballpark in spring training early. I'm going to get there at seven o'clock today because he's getting there early. Oh my gosh, he's already there. He was there at 630. Maybe I should go a little bit earlier. And so, you know, I think first off, Alex always treated people the right way. But more than anything, he set that example. You will not find one guy that has been a teammate with Alex's in the last 10 years that 12 years, 13 years, that would have a bad thing to say about him. If if they do have a bad thing to say about him, they're not going to voice it publicly because they're going to be in the the strong minority, as in maybe the only person. So there's no there's a handful of athletes I've been around where you actually could ask everybody an opinion privately and they'll give you the same opinion. And there are others, most, where you know you dig around a little bit and you'll start to find that not everybody views them the same way. He's a great player, but I think he's fake. He's a great player, but he he, you know, he loves the attention. He loves the cameras. He's a great player, but he's selfish, whatever it is. You never hear that about Alex Gordon. So I think, and then the other thing too, is that he was more vocal than people realized, but you never saw it or heard it. It was all behind the scenes. It was all quiet. It was all private, especially more so in the last few years. And so I would hear those rumblings, but anything that he needed to address with a teammate was done in a dignified way quietly without embarrassing anyone and so you know and the other side to it too jim is when you do it as long as he did it you don't stay that long without being really good and without treating people the right way or if you're not treating people the right way you have to really 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 be good for them to, to put up with you for a long yeah. time yeah yeah and even you know we mentioned alex gordon a lot but even like you know you got a chance to cover albert Pujols, and then you know with salvador perez and even court warner in football now, Kurt Warner came from nowhere and then became an MVP quarterback. Uh, were those sim- They all have similar qualities. What maybe were some of the things that they did differently, Joel, that were also as effective as what Alex did here in Kansas City? They're all different. I mean, I think all four of those guys are very different. I, you know, I, I think from a football standpoint, I think more than any other sport, the, the quarterback has to be a leader. I mean, I think it's the only sport I can think of where a specific position has to be a leader, right? You can, the equivalent to a quarterback to me in baseball is the pitcher. They've got the ball on every play, at least to start every single play. They don't have to be a leader. You don't have to say a word as a pitcher. You could certainly follow your catcher and, and, and follow everybody else. But you got you got 10 other guys on every play in football looking at you. So in Kurt Warner's case, and it's been a long time since I've been around Kurt, but what, what stood out about Kurt is that is he, you know, he'll, he'll be in the running every single year was probably back then if there was such an award and and even still would be, I think to this day of being the nicest guy, you know, who's going to win the nicest guy of the year award. That was Kurt. So not to say that he was a pushover, but I can guarantee you that he treated everyone 
you know, just perfectly. So now it's one thing to be a nice guy, but can you produce? And he was. So that's a magical combination right there. Albert could be a little bit more difficult. I mean, I know not everybody knew Albert as well as others. And Albert, um, and this would be a similarity between all these guys, incredible work ethic. And, you know, Albert's a guy that would put his head down and go to work. And it was very regimented. It was very, uh, and, and I'm guessing it still is to this day. Uh, but like Alex Gordon, in a sense that um, very, very methodical, hardest working guy. Uh, there, there, there isn't free time in someone like Albert Pujols or Alex Gordon's day because you get to the park here and you start to get treatment here and then you start, uh, you know, lifting weights here and then you get some early work in the batting cage here and then you stretch here and you go up, up wait a minute, I, I saved 10 minutes to go eat and sit in my chair. Like guys would give Alex Gordon a hard time. Like, did you schedule time to go sit down for 10 minutes? And I think Pujols was like that too. But Albert, you know, Albert had an edge to him, um, still does, not as much now. And Albert, getting back to, you know, what I said to, to you guys and what Jim asked too, um, it took me seven years to to build a relationship with Albert. And I, I thought that he just was not an easy guy for so many years. I actually blame myself for that because I didn't understand how to connect with a superstar and everything I talked about before and in building those relationships. I didn't understand how to do that as a younger reporter. And, and once I figured it out, it was, it was pretty game changing and life changing for me. But, but Albert said to me, well, after the fact, a, a handful of years ago now, well, I, I sort of confessed to him. I said, you know, I got to admit that you used to scare the living heck out of me. And, uh, and he did. I mean, the results weren't always good for me and he got embarrassed and he said, you know, everybody wants something from me, but once you, once I trust you, I'll do anything for you. And it dawned on me in that moment that we so often forget to build trust. So, you know, if somebody says to me, Hey, can, can you connect me with Albert Pujols for some charity, blah, blah, blah. I'm probably not going to do it because I'm going to violate that trust. And, and I don't want to be the one that's the gatekeeper. So in Albert's case, very different than a Warner uh, and a Gordon, a little bit tougher to get through. But once you get there, then sky's the limit. And so everyone respected Albert for the work ethic and obviously the ability to, to play the game at the highest of levels and, and the competitiveness too. Um, Salvador Perez is totally different. If you look at all those guys we just mentioned, Kurt, nicest guy in the world, Alex, quiet, uh, hardworking, Albert, intense, hardworking. Um, Salvador Perez, you, you know, one of the best personalities in the game and a high energy and a positive guy and uh, someone that makes everybody around him feel good. He's a magnet for people. Um, but I do think the common thread between all of them with different leadership styles is that they all, I, no one was ever going to call any one of those four guys lazy um, or or not caring. <clears throat> And I think that that's the common bond. Like those guys love the game, whichever game it was, and are willing to work to do anything for it. You think about that too. One thing you talk about, like with Kurt Warner and Albert Pujols. I mean, Kurt Warner, the story of, you know, working at High V in the Arena Football League, no one gave him a chance. And even I remember Albert Pujols when he came out of playing like Maple Woods in this area. 
my dad was coaching in college and the scouts were like, I don't know if he has a position. I don't know, like, dude, is he a position to play or whatever? And he didn't get drafted later. Like, look at those two to where they didn't listen to outside people telling them who they were or what they could do. They were so gritty. You see a lot of those athletes, like, they believe in themselves so much and they just stay after until they get what they want. Yeah, and there's a common thread with all those guys there, too. And I think that's probably true for anybody that's made it. I mean, there there are certain people that are such ridiculous talents that even if they didn't care as much, they'd still be really good, right? I mean, what made Jordan the best was that not only was he the best talent and the hardest worker, but that wasn't enough for him. Same for Kobe Bryant. Like if, if, if they had just been satisfied with their talent, that would have still had them be all-stars. But because they cared and worked harder than everyone else and put it all together, I mean, it was like when you take that, that ability – and you put in the same equal level of passion to it, that's when you start having, you know, greatest of all time type of conversations. But I think to some extent, they all have a chip on their shoulders. Like you don't make it to the big leagues or the NFL and, and go about your business satisfied every day. There's a, there, there's a, there's a different wiring with these guys. And I'll give you this example. And I think it applies to Pujols who I know carried a chip on his shoulder his whole career of everyone that passed over him. And I don't know if he thought about it quite like that. I think he did at times, but Albert's a guy that would use that as fuel. Uh, Whit Merrifield is a guy that uses it as fuel uh, to say, Hey, you know, ninth round pick. I didn't have this opportunity. And, and uh, let me show you what you were missing out on. I mean, unless you're, you know, the first overall pick, somebody decided on someone else over you. Uh, you know, if you went second, I mean, look at look at Alex Bregman in Houston. He, he chose the number two because he was the second pick. And it was a reminder to him that he wasn't one. But the example I was going to give you is I was talking to Raul Labanias the other day. And there's a guy that that falls under the, like he could battle Kurt Warner for the man of the year, you know, good guy of the year award. And I mean, this is a guy that averaged 20 homers a year in major league baseball for, for a 12 year stretch and beloved in every single clubhouse he was in connected with everybody bilingual. Um, everybody loved, still loves Raul Abanez. And he, he told me he was the 36th round draft pick of the Seattle Mariners in, I think, 1992, out of Dade uh, County Community College. And he said they gather up all the all the kids from that draft class, and they had a speaker in. And the speaker said to them, look around the room right now. Look at the all these 40 guys in here. And one, maybe two of you will make it to the big leagues one day. And Ibanez, who is so nice and humble, says to me, my immediate thought, like where my brain went, was okay, me and who else? That's as a 36 round draft pick. And he said, that's just, that wasn't like thinking about it. It was just like, that was the immediate response me and who? And he looked around the room, who else is joining me? That, I mean, that that's pretty remarkable. It sounds like, you know, they have a good mixture of being humble, but also having a, a boldness to them, like, yeah, I'm going to do it. 
I may not have to show it or say it, but I'm going to show you my work ethic. And, you know, I'm just curious, Joel, you know, same thing about, you know, coaches, because, you know, coaches, they have to climb the ladder too, just like base, like, like players do, you know, guys like Dick Vermeil, Tony La Russa, um, Ned Yost, Mike Matheny, you know, they had to, you know, not, not necessarily pay their dues, but they were around a long time. It seems like before they really got, maybe not so much Mike Matheny per se, but the other three, really were involved in all levels of coaching before they really got their, their shot at the, at the top level. Now, what were some of the things that they did? But I would also say that, that even a Mike Matheny did pay his dues, maybe not climbing the ranks as a coach, but he paid his dues all the years as a player and uh, you know, all the sacrifice and the minor leagues and all the hits to the head as a catcher and all of that type of stuff. I think what all those guys, um, have done like you don't just stumble into a manager's job and if you're a younger guy that that gets there quicker like Matheny did you you do so because you you have a plan you pay attention to detail you don't just show up and say you know hey I played here are my numbers and here's what I did I mean these guys are getting grilled these I, I can't imagine what these interviews are like but I mean, we're talking about interviews about leadership, philosophy, uh, you know, you know, how are you managing a lineup? What are your beliefs on, you know, these statistics and you know, every which end. And, and so these guys all have a vision, you know, like it, it's not like, Hey, I think I can be the next one to take this team somewhere. Well, why, you know, what, what are your philosophies? I think that's interesting to me. Uh, you know, I know the white Sox have been, highly rumored to to want to hire Tony La Russa as manager, which in many ways sounds crazy to me. I'm assuming Tony is in his, he's got to be around 77 or something like that. I mean, 76, yeah. 78. I don't know. Um, that seems crazy to me, but they're not just going to hire him on the spot. I mean, they're going to need to know why uh, that one's a little bit different because back in the seventies, he managed there. Uh, and so there's, there's a, you know, familiarity in a history, but we're talking like four decades apart. Uh, but, but these guys, you, you know, they're I'm getting off track here a little bit. They're under such a spotlight and, you know, they are being judged for wins and losses, of course, but it's just, um, it's more than just about connecting with people. It's more than just, I mean, this is like a CEO type of job. I mean, you're, you are overseeing and managing so much, uh, making millions of dollars doing it with, with a mega industry on the, on the line. And so um, I also think it's interesting that you so often see, see a reverse of course. So if you have the the big personality in there, that uh, the next guy is um, yeah. Like if you look at the white Sox, I mean, it, some of the players thought that they were a little too loosey goosey with their manager, Rick Renneria, who's, who's a great guy. So it doesn't surprise me that maybe they're looking at a Tony La Russa who's much more hardcore and, you know, more, more intense, uh, if that's the right way to put it. You, you oftentimes see, like, it goes one way and another way and one way or in another way. It's rare that you see a guy that leaves being replaced with the same type of guy. And as you, uh, Joel, as you, as you said, though, every, like everybody has kind of their own personality, you know, these yeah. coaches. But what do you, you know, sports are so challenging, you know, the ups and downs being able to stay consistent, stay confident. What do you see some of these great managers you've been around? What do they do like the locker room, working with athletes to keep them, 
focus on the common goal, but to really help them to stay consistent and maybe if they're losing their confidence to get their confidence back, what do they do? Well, I, you know, I, first and foremost, I think that, and especially, and I hear this from a lot of, not just coaches, but executives in the workforce too, uh, with all the stuff that I do on the business side, that in this generation, which by the way, it drives me crazy when people say, oh, millennials are all Gen Z, like, you know, that's all get off my lawn stuff nowadays. And I think the best leaders sit there and say, okay, how can I better understand, you know, this generation? What, what can I learn from you? And this gets back to this, the, the trust part too, because guess what? If I, as, um, as a Gen Xer is willing to listen and learn from a Gen Z, they might be willing to learn from me too. And we all may be able to get better. So I think the best ones are willing to listen, observe, be open-minded. Um, that doesn't mean that you let the inmates run the asylum, so to speak. But I think right now in this day and age of generation, this is a different generation of athletes and a different generation of employees in the workforce. And it's just, it's generational. It's, I don't know if we had that much say when we were growing up. I don't know that, you know, you got in someone's face uh, if they weren't doing things right. And guys don't get in each other's faces anymore. It's just, that's just the way it is. I, I, I think about this story. I'd say maybe five years ago, I was announcing some college hockey and I was talking to uh, a coach and, you know, big program and we're getting ready to call the game. And he says to my partner and I, he says, you know, our, our captain left last year and, and, and captain in hockey, they were the C it's a big deal. They're the leader of the room, all that. And, and he says, you know, this is one of our best players and he's a senior now and he's a great guy, but he's really struggling. I mean, like, it's like suddenly wearing the C he's either not comfortable with it. He's not the same player. So, so I walked up to him and I just said, I want to help you out here. He said, I, I'm going to take the C. I'm going to take the C. You just go focus on playing. Let me be the captain. This is the head coach. He turns to us. He goes, I have no idea what the hell that even means. But it totally freed him from that responsibility. He said, this generation, they're afraid to call their teammates out on things. They're just not wired that way anymore. Um, you know, that whether it's putting your music in and doing your thing or what there's a whole deeper discussion on, you know, travel ball and the way guys have been raised. And, you know, there's so much competitiveness and so much on the line from the time they're, you know, teenagers or even before that it's just different. And, you know, oftentimes these teenagers are treated like college athletes or pro athletes. And, and so they're coming in with a different mindset. And so you have to be able to connect with them and understand them at a better level. And what, what I am seeing at the professional level is that you have to, you, you have to treat them differently. This is not old school, tough love type of stuff. And you have to figure out how to better deliver that tough love through a different way. You, you still have to get that message across but it's not going to be a get in someone's face and scream at them because they're, they've never, they've never been treated like that before. So I think that there's an evolution to it. I'm glad I'm not the one that has to do it, but I think that it is a matter of getting back to the question, Jim, you got to listen, you got to learn, you have to have, I, I write a, a chapter in my book, uh, which is coming out in December called read the room. 
And it's what Raul Abania said to me. He goes, I like that expression. He's like, it's what I call feel. Having a feel for people and understanding that Jason may react differently than Jim. And, and by the way, that's been true since the beginning of time. But I think it's probably more important ever to be in tune with people, especially at a time where everybody's sort of in their own worlds and their devices and social media and everybody's half listening to each other, is that you really just have to figure out a way to connect with these guys. And you have to do it on a case-by-case basis. Yeah, and, uh, you know, speaking of teenagers, Joel, you have a 18-year-old yourself who has uh, found a love of football here recently. Uh, you know, my question to you as a, as a parent, in, in youth sports and, and as a having a uh, football player yourself, you know, has he always wanted to play football? Has that been something that, or has it been more of a progressive thing later on in life? No, it, I mean, I wouldn't even say progressive. It just showed up one day. So I don't know. I don't know where the progress part happened. I, I've got my, my senior in high school is a big kid. And, you know, I think he, I, I don't think I know he regrets not having played earlier, but he never had an interest. I mean, from freshman year on, they were asking if he would play. And, and now he's suddenly finding himself as a, as a defensive lineman that, that doesn't play very much. Uh, Cause he, I mean, he, he'd never even put on football pads or uniform in his life until, you know, until they started practicing this summer. And so, I mean, it, it's all new to him, but he's been a hockey player his whole life. Uh, but, I don't know what it was, if it was just like, hey, last crack senior year, let's give it a try. Um, but I, I'll say this much about him, and I think it's an important lesson. Like he's, He'll get a lot of reps playing JV. He'll be lucky to get into a game for varsity because he has no experience at it. And I watch him on the sidelines on a Friday night, and I mean, he's the most one of the most engaged kids on the sidelines. So he, he certainly understands the role of, you know, if I'm not on the field, I, there are ways for me to help this team still. So he's a high energy guy, pumping everybody up and doing all of that. And I've seen I've seen him take on that role in hockey too, on teams where where he was more of a role player. And then I've seen him uh, in in years, and I think this will be the case for him with hockey this year, as a senior, where where he's in more of that leadership role, and and he'll take that on too. But I I, I think that there's a, a greater message there of just no matter who you are or what your role on the team is, you do have a role. And that could be the last guy on the bench or the first guy up. You have to contribute in some form or another. Well, I love I love what you say that too, Joel. It's like every team, there's a role, right? And put your ego aside. Whatever role that is for you, buy into that role. Be great at that role, right? And that role could help a team succeed, right? Like you said, your, your son could be creating enthusiasm on the bench, lifting spirits of somebody, not giving up and quitting, giving them the energy to go in and maybe make a couple plays to change the game. It could be a scouting team. You're on the scout team. You're going through what the other team's going to do, and you're taking pride in to make sure you're executing properly to simulate what the other team's going to do. That's beneficial. Now, I do think coaches and you might coaches need to really um, – I think kids and people in general, you know, they, they want to be appreciated, Right. And I think it's like even people in those roles that maybe don't get the glory, that they're being knowledge for those roles. Because when they do that, then they're going to even be better at it and, and uh, more want to help the team in many different ways, help them succeed. I, I think it, this is a hard one to get buy-in on. But to me, if you're there, you have a role. And I, I we 
we structure this stuff with a hierarchy sometimes, and I don't know that there needs to be. I mean, I understand that that the quarterback is going to get the starting quarterback is going to get more reps than the third string quarterback, and the you know, and and the guys that are playing on a given day in baseball are going to get you know more preparation time or more at bats. Although that's not even true, but they they might get priority of when they go that type of thing. But sometimes I think that we get it in our heads that if we're not the star that we don't matter and you find me a team that has a role player that doesn't matter i i mean think about this from a coaching standpoint like most people don't know all the work that goes in if i were to tell you that rusty coots is a longtime first base coach never spends an off day going and wandering around a city. He's locked in his room working all day. And people will be like, well, what, like, why, what is the first base coach doing? He's spending like six, seven, eight hours studying video, seeing if he could find one little move from the next day's pitcher next week or next month's pitcher, because he thinks that if he finds that they might be able to run wild and win a game and he finds it. So, I mean, he was telling me about, about a year early on where they found, found some signs um, from, from a team within the division and they ended up stealing something like 18 or 19 bases against them that year. So no one talks about the first base coach. They talk about him a little bit more here because, because he's a big personality, but most people say, well, what does he do at first base anyway? Like, why is he holding that stopwatch? What you know, third base coach is the one that gets all of the attention and the notice because they're the ones that are either right or wrong and sending them home or holding them up. And then we debate about it for years. But what about the third bases, third base coach's role as the infield coach? What about the decision to place a guy in one spot or another, move the infield in or back them up? Or what about all the, the work that they're doing with their infielders at, at 1.30 in the afternoon? And what about all the work that the outfield coach, who was also in the Royals case, the first base coach, who was also in the Royals case, the base running coach, who was also in the Royals case, the bunting coach. And what if all of that work put in enables a guy to perfect his craft at bunting, which not many do anymore, uh, well, and they win a game because of it. So there are ways to contribute to winning on a team or in an organization that don't always show up in the stat sheet. And that to me is the reminder of why every single one of these roles matter. And the best people, I'll take my, my television crew as an example. If anybody watches, they know who I am and they don't need to like me by the way, either, but they know who I am. They know who Rex Hudler is. They know who Ryan Lefever is, Jeff Montgomery, Steve Fiziak. They don't know our guys in the truck, but when a graphic is off, or we don't have the pitch speed up because something is down. I get tweets about it immediately. They're not they're not sending it to the guys in the truck. They don't know who they are. They send it to me because they know how to get a hold of me. But the point is, is that if those guys aren't doing their job right, or if something is going wrong and they're trying to fix it, which is more likely the case because our guys are amazing, the product's not as good. And 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 they're not the starting shortstop. They're not the starting quarterback. They're like the version of the first base coach. But if they don't do their job right, nobody, uh, no, nothing goes well. So I, I just, you know, I try to remind my kids that all the time. My, my daughter's in theater. Like, if you don't get the star role, then 
be great at what you do because there's a reason why that role is there. There, there's a reason why there's an ensemble on stage. Without that ensemble, the whole play looks different. So yeah. there's a role to play for all of us, and some are more high profile than others. That doesn't mean that they're more important, though. That's a great point, uh, Joel, and uh, I think it sometimes gets overlooked quite often, like you mentioned. Um, so now we're going to go into the last part of the section called the four cues of 40 athletes. Um, are you ready for them? I think so. All right. Uh, first one is, what is the best life lesson sports has taught you, either when you played when you were younger or like now as a, as a, uh, on, in television? Well, I, it's two things, and they'll kind of go hand in hand. Um, one is, regardless of how you do, you got to get up and do it again the next day. Uh, to me, that's why baseball is the best teaching tool of all the sports, because it's not once a week or twice a week. It's, it's oftentimes seven days a week. And that is much more representative of whatever we do in life, you know, going to the office, being good, you know, good parents, um, you know, school, whatever it is. So the first part of that would be that, that sports is as much as we talk about winning sports, sports to me, especially baseball is so much about handling failure. The second part to that, is nothing ever goes as planned ever. Jason, how many times have you drawn up a play that it actually went 100% as executed or as designed, right? I mean, something goes wrong. Somebody forgets something. something I mean, when it works out perfectly, that's great. But how do you respond? What I call hitting the curveball? How do you respond when things happen that you didn't expect to happen? And that to me is sports. You can't script sports. And I think that's very indicative of life too. Yeah, you know, especially whenever you're coaching middle schoolers and you have this great play in your mind and then you try to go out and like, oh, man, that is not what I had up here. So definitely. Hey, if, they, if they if they make the shot, though, you're like, hey, I drew that up. So I they missed as I had it. They, they totally broke that thing down. Not even yeah. Yeah. what I drew up. Yeah, it's like the old, uh, you know, when the guy starts firing that long range NBA range three and you're like no 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 yeah oh yeah yeah good shot you know like okay let's like let's let damian lillard throw up the near half court shot the rest of you guys let's leave that one alone (laughs) all right second one here uh if you could spend time with anyone you admire in sports uh dead or alive who would it be and uh why would you choose them oh man um so many but I think I, I think I'd like to just spend the night with Charles Barkley. You know, I, I I mean, he was one of my favorite players growing up. I mean, my favorites were Michael Jordan, Dr. J, Charles Barkley. I was really a Sixers fan. And then we moved to Chicago. And, you know, how could you not be a fan of Jordan? I actually did as a sophomore in high school hang out with two rookies for a couple of hours by the names of Scotty Pippen and Horace Grant. And then I, I wrote a paper or a speech about it. So that was really cool. Um, and I was just a kid, but I think to spend the night with, with Barkley would be a lot of fun. I mean, I'm not really wild by any of these guys anymore. They're just people. So I, I think I would like to just have the pure entertainment of, um, of Barkley. Cause I think he, he makes a lot of people happy. Hey, by the way, I grew up being a Sixers fan too from Kansas City, and I love nice. Dr. J. I used uh, to love when that when they used to be like, 
Number sit front, and they'd be like, Julius Dr. J. Yeah. Irving. Yeah. Unbelievable. Best. Yeah, he yeah. was awesome. Oh, so, yeah. That, uh, so, hey, the third question is this. What is the best advice you received from a coach you have worked with or played for? Um, I'll, I'm going to give you one from a, a, a colleague, a, a late colleague, uh, Paul Splitorf. You know, I was so lucky when I came here in 08 to to be able to to essentially join his team. I mean, he had been obviously he was Royals all time wins leader, and then he'd been a broadcaster for a long time. And you know, I admired him so much because he was that rare former player that could also call play by play. So he could go three innings as the analyst, and he was dead on and spectacular. And then seamlessly shift to being the play by play guy and be just as good at that. <clears throat> he got sick and it affected his speech. And, and so he ended up, they shifted him, they flip-flopped him and Frank White. And I've been working with Frank White and Split was up in the booth and they, they thought maybe if they moved Split to work with me, you know, 30 minute pregame, 30 minute postgame, I'm doing a chunk of the talking. Um, that was going to be maybe a little bit easier on him and, and the audience who, who loved him, but it was, you know, his speech was really affected. So selfishly, um, when he got sick, which was awful, um, I got to work with him more closely every single day um, before he passed in 2011. But but the advice that he gave me early on, which I take with myself to this day, and I think it's important. It, it, I think it could apply to everyone. Remember, like you know, I'd come from St. Louis where they were winning every year, and now I come here and they're losing like a lot. And I was, you know, I was still a sports fan. I mean, I was in my 30s, but it was my first time traveling with a team everywhere they went. Uh, being at every game. So I would, I'd get grumpy about losses. I'd, I'd get mad about these losses like a fan would, like a fan should. And he pulled me aside one night and he said, Joel, he said, there are a lot of important people that are paid a lot of money to lose sleep over these losses and you're not one of them. And when he said that to me, and it didn't quite register right away, but the more I thought about it, I realized he was telling me not, he wasn't saying don't care. He was saying, you have a job to do one way or another, win or lose. You have a job to do every single night, which involves bringing energy and passion to the game and what you're talking about. And so it doesn't mean you can't talk about the losses. It means that you you have to put those aside no matter what it is. And I really learned something that he mastered. And also I see Ryan Lefevre master all the time. I see Jeff Montgomery's great at it, is that the results don't affect how we go about our business. Is it easier when they win? Of course. But the lesson I think to everybody is this good day, bad day, no matter what it is, you've got to have a passion for what you do. You have a job to do. And then that that's the ultimate message. If you have a job to do, you have to figure out a way to do it. And so uh, I've taken that with me really since the first year I began working with him in 2008. Uh, it probably makes me less of a fan now. I'm just not emotional about it. Um, yeah, certainly got more nervous during the World Series and excitement level and living on every pitch. And you try to be a fan, but I can't let being a fan get in the way of what I do. I love that. The, the last question is, what's the one character trait or life skill if you're putting a team together that you'd look for in your players? Um, I, I, I think... I just would like to combine work ethic and authenticity. 
You know, and I, I, I know not every team and every culture is going to have everybody be fully authentic, but I, I just think when you have a mix of people that are willing to outwork everybody else and that care about each other, it goes a long way. You, you can win with good people too. Like, you know, you don't have to have all a-holes that are just because they're great at what they do that they, you know, they're grumpy and they treat people poorly and all that. Like you can find good people. They don't have to be Kurt Warner or Raul Labanias, but I, I think that's it. Jim is like finding people that care enough to work hard, care about those around them and care about their own, you know, themselves in a way of pride. Uh, take that with being true and being authentic. And I think it goes a long ways. Well, thanks Joel for being on the show, man. Um, you know, first of all, how can uh, people reach you? How can they learn more about you? You know, your book that you said you got coming out, you know, where can we find you? Well, I'm all over social media, probably more so than, than I need to be. But uh, so that's easy. Twitter, Goldberg, KC, Instagram at Joel Goldberg, KC. I'm on LinkedIn. And then the website is joelgoldbergmedia.com. And we'll have all kinds of stuff regarding the book in December. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm out there. So I'm pretty, if you can't find me, you're, you're, you must be new at social media because it's uh, I'm, I'm there. I'm there a lot. And Joel, what's th that? What's th thanks for all you're doing too. I mean, all the work you're doing and the books and I know you're out speaking a lot and help a lot of people out, especially during this time. It's a, it's been a challenging time for many different people. So thanks for doing all that. No, I appreciate it. And you know what? It's, it is a challenging time, but it's, it's also a time of opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that, you know, we, we were, we will all get through this too um it would be nicer if we could get through this together and you know there, there's a whole other discussion about being so divided but i mean i think in the end we all want to be healthy we all want to be happy and so you know i, I appreciate you saying that Jim. i mean if, if i can help in in small ways and do that again that's we talk about roles and and it's a role that i'm comfortable with so i appreciate that yeah and if you are looking to transform your athletes teams or organizations by teaching essential life skills through sports now, check out our website at 40athletes.com. There you can enroll in our 24-week online course or schedule a discovery call today to show us, to let us show you how 40 athletes can help develop your better players and help them become better people. Let, uh, thanks for tuning in today, and we will see you next time on the 40 Athletes Podcast. Joel Goldberg, thank you, sir, for tuning in today, coming on, and we will talk soon. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Joel, again. Thanks a lot.